The following is the fourth and final session of a teaching series taught by Reverend Stephen Stacks entitled Christianese, Understanding the Words of Our Faith. This session focuses on the biblical context of the word justice. Okay, y'all. Good to see you all here for the last um, session in this series on understanding the words of our faith. Uh, Before we get started, I'm going to... There we go. I'm going to plug... Our next uh, series, which is going to be taught by uh, Dr. Lydia Hoyle, whom most of you know, um, and it's her series is going to be called Ancient Wisdom for the Contemporary Church. Lydia is a professor at Campbell Divinity School uh, who specializes in Baptist history, but also um, is a church historian in general. So um, I'm assuming by the title of this, this will be about the early church um, and lessons we can learn from the early church uh, to apply to our lives today. Um, But she will give you all the details in January and February. So mark that on your calendars, faith formation teachers. Remember that. We're back to our class, individual classes, until then. Okay. So today we're talking about justice. Before we get to it, um, again, just a brief review of the other sessions because they matter for this one. So our first session was on sin. Um, And we talked about how people replace the language of sin with other models to describe what is fundamentally wrong with the world and with human beings. Um, But we kind of decided that our language, uh, our theological language of sin, um, can't be replaced by these other models. There's deficiencies in those models that the language we have from our faith tradition um, describes in a way that other models can't really describe. Um, And then we define sin as living out of the illusion that we are separate from God and each other, living in denial of your own or someone else's identity as a bearer of God's image, alienation from the source of goodness for which you were created. As a broader and better working definition of sin in all its complexity as as the Bible describes it. Session two was on salvation. We talked about how salvation is more than going to heaven when you die. Um, Different biblical authors talk about salvation in different ways, and they describe different paths to get to salvation. Um, And the Gospels are a perfect example of this. The Gospels uh, emphasize, well, put it this way, instead of, you know, contradict each other, which they do, um, about how how one is saved, um, they emphasize different paths to salvation Um, Matthew and Luke being much more concerned with what you do. Um, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Um, Mark being much more interested in uh, your faith, which is the third session, and John being more interested in what he calls belief. Believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Um, Then we talked about, we define salvation as experiencing the wholeness that God intends for us in all of creation. Wrong being made right, reversal of the alienation we feel from God, ourselves, and each other. And then we talked about how, um, well, we may not experience this until the next life completely, but God's goal is to save the world, not take us away from the world. And lastly, um, I kind of gave you an argument for why I think scripture is um, that there's more scriptural evidence for what we call universal salvation, that in the end, God gets what God wants, which is that everyone will be saved. Um, And that there's really only a couple verses in the Bible that describe what we, uh, that vaguely talk about what we would call hell. Um, But that that concept really arises much later, um, uh, you know, with Dante and people like that than in scripture. Um, But that there's clearly going to be a judgment, but the Bible says over and over again that God intends for everyone to be saved and that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and that the doors of the new Jerusalem will never be closed. So we don't obviously know what's going to happen when we die, um, but the Bible seems to think there is hope that God wins in the end. Um, And then the third session was on faith. 
Uh, and we talked about how faith is more than intellectual assent to maxims or beliefs, which oftentimes we think faith uh, means when we talk about it in English. Um, then I asked this question, are we justified or saved by faith, works, or neither? And the answer is yes, according to the Bible. <laughs> different passages say different things. The question is what those words mean. Right? Um, and then so I define faith kind of pulling together a lot of different people's scholarship on this as pledging allegiance to the reign of Christ in your heart and with your life. And that word allegiance is what I said needs to be added to our understanding of faith to really complete or round out what that word means in scripture. We often think of it as an intellectual thing, faith. I believe this thing to be true even though I see no evidence for it. That's kind of oftentimes what we think of as faith. Um, but the words that are translated as faith in the Bible are, are more complicated than that, and they have this connotation of loyalty to something or someone, allegiance to something or someone. I place my faith in this. I vest my faith in this. Um, and that this is Christ, the King. So you transfer your allegiance from whatever else, and this can be seen in a lot of Paul's writings. You know, we were... Uh, we were bound to the powers of this world, but God rescued us, and now we, you know, transfer, we've been transferred into the kingdom of God. Um, so pledging allegiance to the reign of Christ in your heart and with your life, putting all of your trust in God's dream for the world, maintaining fidelity to Christ and Christ's way in your life and in the world. So those words, fidelity, trust, allegiance, kind of get at what the word faith means a little bit more completely. Okay, and today's session is on justice, which at first glance might seem uh, like a departure from the other words we've talked about, but I'm going to show you how uh, it's actually integral to how we understand sin, salvation, and faith, and it's really one of the central concepts in our scripture. Um, before we get into that, um, well, first let me tell you a joke, and then we're going <laughs> to... So I started it, so now I can't stop. A lawyer had a jury trial in a very difficult business case. And the client who attended the trial um, was out of town when the jury came back with this decision, which uh, was for the lawyer and his client. And the lawyer sent a text to his client that said, Justice has triumphed. And the client writes back, appeal at once. <laughs> um, so, before we get started, I want you all to think about what the word justice means to you right now. When you hear that word, justice, how would you define it? And just call it out if you have. Associate. What? Fairness, okay. It, it could be associate, word associations like that or a definition. Expensive. Expensive. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Restitution. Restitution, he said. Putting things right. Putting things right. Getting what we deserve. Getting what we deserve. <laughs> mm, mm. <laughs> what else? Can things really be made right for everyone? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Stephen, I think of timeless. Timeless? Universal in some sense? There's some kind of... Sometimes it takes time. Oh, oh, I see what you mean. Okay, timeless in the sense of one must have patience if you want to see... We prefer it immediately, but, but sometimes it takes time. Okay, yeah. What about righteousness? What does that word mean to you? Rightness, yeah, the word, yeah, okay, definition in, in there already, yeah, what else? Blameless. Blameless. God's reign. God's reign. Seeking what's best for all of God's creation. 
any other definitions or associations with righteous or righteousness? Pompous, you said. Okay. Self-righteous. Truth, goodness. Okay, so like I said, justice, believe it or not, is intimately tied to the words that we've already talked about. Um, despite what you may have been taught, the sin that God seems most concerned about throughout Scripture, by far, is injustice. Salvation, wholeness, shalom, salvation as we defined it, is marked by justice, is full of justice. Justice is the way you would describe justice for everyone. Um, things being made right, right? We talked about that as salvation. Um, and the way that Christ, the way of Christ that we put our faith in, that we pledge our allegiance to, is a way that seeks and establishes justice and equity for all people. Um, and we're going to talk about those things, but I wanted to preface that by saying that this word is deeply connected with these other concepts that are um, integral to our, um, to our faith. Um, first thing I want to tell you about justice, if my clicker will work, right. is that biblical justice, there we go, has nothing to do with what we call the criminal justice system. So here's the problem, is that we use that word a lot in our society, justice. Um, and typically, when we're using it, it's very far from what Scripture is talking about when it says the word justice. Um, typically, it's, you know, someone commits a crime, and they get justice for their crime, a.k.a. they get punished for what they did. Um, but... When the Bible talks about justice, it's not talking about retributive punishment for wrongs, but about reparation. And I heard someone say, you know, this is the concept of, you know, to make things whole or right. The righting of primarily systemic wrongs the Bible is concerned about when it talks about justice. Um, for instance, you know, in our kind of American concept of criminal justice system, what would it mean to do justice to the orphans and the widows, which is a common refrain in Scripture? They've obviously not done anything wrong, so it's not justice in the sense of, you know, punishing them for something. Right, so it's righting the wrong that exists. That the fact that we have widows and orphans is something that God is concerned about. It's an injustice. And so in this sense, justice is, yeah, making sure they are cared for and whole. Um, God loves justice, which is also said throughout scripture, does not mean that God loves to punish people when they do something wrong. It means that God loves equity and truth. What is right, God loves shalom for everyone, including people who are, whose daily condition is unjust. Um, so again, what, what we would call justice in the United States would probably be considered, especially by the prophets, to be the opposite of justice in scripture because our criminal justice system is biased against the poor and the vulnerable, which is, those are the people that scripture is most concerned with. Um, and so we have a justice system that is weighted against the poor. And I can hear, well, we don't have to imagine it. We can just read the book of Amos or Isaiah or Jeremiah and hear what God would say about a justice system that is weighted against the most vulnerable. Um, another thing I wanted to say about uh, this first point is that um, God's justice is always full or suffused or you know, contains God's mercy and love. That's important to remember when you're reading scriptures, not to see the word justice or God is just. So, for instance, I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but my experience is that um, when people are describing that kind of simplistic road to salvation that we talked about in the salvation, the, the track 
you know, the trap version of Christianity. Um, what they say is often that God is merciful, but God is also just. And what they mean by that is that God loves you, but God also has to punish you when you do something wrong. That's what that word typically means in that context, right? God is just, which means God can't ignore when you do something wrong. But when the Bible talks about justice, it, those two things aren't separate. God's mercy and God's justice aren't separate things. God's justice is about God's mercy. Making things right is about the fact that God loves us and the world, and especially the people who live uh, in a condition that is unjust from the start. So the poor, the vulnerable, what the Bible calls the, uh, the orphans, the widows, and the stranger, those, that kind of triptych of vulnerable people in Scripture. Stephen, can it, there's an, a prime example of that in the paper today, that the black man who was hung on that tree right down Kildare Farm Road at Cary oh. Parkway and survived. And Apex oh, yeah. has honored him, but today's paper talks about how they are naming a bench in his honor, mm -hmm. trying to have justice now for a wrong that was committed. Right. Um, there's also, so, did everyone hear that? She's talking about there's an article in the paper about the uh, failed lynching that happened not too far from here. Um, but uh, you also might know of or read something about what's called um, restorative justice, which is a movement within our criminal justice system to kind of redress the wrong that was done by a crime rather than simply punish the uh, perpetrator. Uh, so, you know, that they get into all, you can read about it, but they get into all kinds of creative ways to kind of try to say what was broken here. And how can we begin to heal from it rather than just, you know, let's punish the person who did it and just leave the wrong of the victims just unaddressed other than they got some vengeance, which, you know, what the Bible says about that. Um, okay. Uh, some famous quotes about this, like uh, Cornel West has this famous quote, and I'm not sure if he made it up or someone else did, but that justice is what love looks like in public. It sounds like something Martin Luther King would say, but um, justice is what love looks like in public. Second thing I want to say is that justice and righteousness are overlapping and even, I would say, synonymous concepts in Scripture oftentimes. And when I say synonymous, I don't mean that um, there aren't shades of meaning, but that when we see the word righteousness, especially in the New Testament, there's only one word in Greek for justice and righteousness. And so translators have to decide which one they want to choose. But it, that word could just as easily be justice. And we're going to look at a couple of examples later as to why many times translators choose righteousness when they ch should choose justice, really. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, the Hebrew words that kind of get at this concept um, are mishpat and uh, tzedek. And the first one there is really about uh, a kind of in the stricter sense of like legality um, that would kind of map more onto what we talk about in America with the criminal justice system um, or a law or uh, something like that. And tzedek is, uh, means... Um, equity, righteousness, compassionate, charity. So all, that's kind of, that second one is really more um, what I think the broader use of the term justice is in scripture. That's uh, tzedek. Um, and then, like I was just saying, the Greek word, there's only one, and one root word, and there's a bunch of different words that come from this word, but it's uh, dikaios. Um, and uh, interestingly, uh, English is a weird language, <laughs> as some of you may or may not know. Um, but we have words that come from different places. Uh, and justice is one of the words that comes from other Romance languages in English. And righteousness comes from kind of the Germanic roots of our language, which is why we have two words 
to get at one kind of concept. But if you look at a Bible translation in another Romance language, like Spanish, for instance, um, you will get a better sense of the fact that they're translating one Greek word, and they will choose justicia rather than righteousness, oftentimes. So, for instance, um, in Matthew 5, um, which we all know the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, most of us, um, there's... Uh, about halfway through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for? Okay. But the Spanish translation of that passage is, bienaventurados los que tienen hambre y sed de justicia. Right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be filled. And then later on when it says, blessed are you who are persecuted for Righteousness' sake. Blessed are you who are persecuted for justice. Now, which one of those makes more sense to you? Who, how many times are upstanding, you know, people who are doing right by everyone persecuted for doing that? The people who are persecuted are those who are seeking justice against the powers that be. So those are the people that Jesus is talking about when he said, that's why that's a bad translation of that Greek. That context. Sometimes righteousness is okay because the context means more of what we think of when we hear righteousness. But in that context, Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for seeking justice. Just like the story of the unjust judge and the widow that Jesus tells, right? the parable. Blessed are you when you seek justice. Um, so the reign of God, which we mentioned earlier, some of you said that when you're thinking of justice and righteousness. The reign of God is about justice, establishing justice. It's marked by justice. Um, and, you know, we can see the passages we're reading in Isaiah during Advent for this. Um, righteousness is, and justice are the, the belts around his way. You, you can see this all over Isaiah. Um, also, all over Luke and everywhere. Really, I, every time I cite a scripture reference here, I'm putting etc. Because, because when you start to think of the fact that righteousness is also often the same word, and you read through our scriptures and look for any time the word justice or righteous or right, uh, righteousness or just, any of those words appear, then you start to see this is important. <laughs> it's all over the place. Um, and this is, you know, one of those points where there could, these words are connected. So the reign of God is how we experience salvation here and later. Um, that's what we mean by the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. Um, we experience wholeness by experiencing Jesus' reign in our lives here and in the next life. Um, and if that reign is characterized by justice, then that's integral to experiencing salvation for us and everybody. Uh, Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, justice and shalom are nearly synonyms in which everybody commits their energy, resources, and imaginations to the common good. That's what justice and shalom would look like if we all committed our energy and resources and imaginations to the common good. Okay, next, Christian spirituality cannot be separated from doing justice. Um, and this is important because we have often tried to kind of parcel out um, our faith into different um, you know, segments. Uh, the material, the liberation seeking, the justice side of our faith, which progressive people call, you know, outreach or, you know, and other people call missions and we, we call mission here and that kind of thing. We, we think of that as separate from our contemplative discipleship kind of inner-oriented um, study or even worship um, of God. But that dichotomy is not 
biblical. Um, and you can see this very clearly in the book of James, uh, when that famous section of the book of James where he says, faith without works is dead. Or in the famous verse from 1 John where um, the author says, um, those who say they love God and hate their brother are liars. <laughs> right? If you, if you don't love your brother, then you don't love God. So the last point there, um, the refrain of scripture is that to know God is to do justice. So this is what it means to know who God is because God is just and God loves justice. Um, if you don't do justice, then you don't love God. That's what, you don't know God, know who God is or see God at work in the world or are participating in God's work in the world. Um, and there's all kinds of scripture. I just quoted two of those there, but um, throughout the prophets as well. One interesting um, thing I read recently talked about the famous verse, Micah 6.8, which we all know, um, and we read at the funeral yesterday. What does the Lord require but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God? Um, and this author talked about how um, we typically think of those as three separate things, right? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. But that really, it's what does the Lord require but a life of these that's characterized by these things? And if you think of you know, justice as loving mercy and walking humbly, then those things are connected, right? They're not three separate things we have to do. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. They are a piece. The Lord requires us to do justice, which means loving mercy, which means walking humbly, which means doing justice, etc. All right. And then lastly, we are called to seek justice and prioritize the vulnerable. Um, the first reason for that is because God is passionate about writing injustice and God loves justice. Um, all those verses say exactly that. In fact, why don't we, does anybody have a Bible? Rick, can you look up Isaiah 61, 8? Who else? Uh, Greg, can you look up Psalm 37, 28, and then Susan, Psalm 11, 7, and then Judy, I'll get you another one, just a second. Go ahead and look up Deuteronomy 16, 20, Judy. It's, yeah. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Who's got theirs? Yep. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his faithful ones. The righteous shall be kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. And another. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Go ahead and do Deuteronomy as well, Judy, if you have it. Okay. Justice and only justice you shall pursue so that you may live and occupy the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay. The, you start to look for this. It's everywhere. Um, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Um, the New Testament's tricky because we have spiritualized a lot of it. Um, meaning that we kind of, again, that, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice is a good example of how um, you know we often uh, kind of read Jesus or um, the epistles and we think very individually and very um, kind of in an inner focused way about what's being written and we miss um, the fact that scripture doesn't think in those kind of separate ways Sometimes the Old Testament is clearer about this, but as we know, the only scriptures that Jesus had were 
descriptions. Um, okay, so this this second point um, might be, or the, the bolded point might be problematic for some of us um, to hear, but what is the picture of justice we have in America? It's you. You all have seen the you know the image of the of the woman with the scales, and what does she have around her eyes? A blindfold. To and it's meant to communicate that justice should be delivered equally, without regard for who the person is, right? Um, and there's even scriptures to that effect. You know, show no partiality. Um, but. Uh, overwhelmingly, the Bible describes that God's justice is not blindfolded, but has preferences. And those preferences are for the poor. Um, when there is a situation where um, the poor have been wronged or the vulnerable have been wronged, God is on their side. And that's hard to hear sometimes because oftentimes we don't think of ourselves as poor, uh, and we aren't. Um, and so we think, well, does that mean that God doesn't, you know, God doesn't love me? Or I've also experienced injustices in my life. Uh, what about those? Um, I think, you know, to address those questions, um, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love the rich as well. That's very clear that God does. I mean, think about the famous uh, rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, you know, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing. Right? Um, what it does mean is that God is especially concerned for the vulnerable. And the reason, I think, is because their, I've already hinted at this, but their daily condition is dehumanizing. Um, the rich may experience what um, one scholar calls episodic injustice. So, I mean, obviously, you know, bad things happen to all different kinds of people. Um, so, and in, you know, a rich person can experience an injustice here or there. Uh, but God takes the side of the poor because their entire existence is unjust. The fact that there is poverty, God hates. So, um, God is always going to be on the side of righting that wrong. Which means for those of us who are not poor, that we need to kind of be in touch with God at work in the world. We need to take God's side, right? If we are pledging our allegiance to Christ and Christ's way in the world, um, it often means being on the side of justice for the vulnerable. Um, this is also made clear. Uh, by the way, the Exodus narrative is the is the kind of quintessential example of this. Um, the beginning of Exodus, uh, when God well, not the very beginning, but when God calls Moses, he says, "What? I have heard the cry of my people in bondage in Egypt, and I will deliver them, and you're going to get them." <laughs> Um, so, you know, and then, you know, we, us progressive people don't like the plague narrative because it seems bad, it seems harsh, right? That's one of those stories in scripture that we will wish wasn't there, where God is smiting the firstborn of Egypt, right? It makes me uncomfortable. Um, regardless of the historicity of that and of, you know, whether God actually did that in, you know, in history. Uh, the point of the Exodus narrative is that God sided with the slaves in Egypt, the Hebrew people, and liberated them from their oppressors. That is kind of the point. And that reverberates throughout scripture. The Exodus narrative is much more foundational than Genesis for the faith of the Jewish people and then um, for Jesus and his followers. Uh, the, the second um, kind of uh, hint that we have that God's justice is not blindfolded is that God is much harsher on the powerful 
when they pervert justice. And this is also clear throughout scripture. Um, the book of Hosea is all about this. Um, somebody have, uh, somebody look up Jeremiah 2, 26. Felice, can you do that? And then somebody look up Isaiah 3, 14 to 15. You have Jeremiah? Felice, not yet? Jeremiah 2, 26. Yeah, so the list there of the people that God is most mad at, right? They're kings, they're priests, they're officials, they're prophets, right? It says prophets at the end, right? Did I, I didn't mishear you. Okay. Um, so we're talking about leaders, whether they be religious or political or in a, some other way, community leaders are the people that God is most mad at when things are unjust. You have one of them, Rick? Yeah, go ahead. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and the leaders of his people. If you who have ruined my vineyard, it is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Hmm. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord the God Almighty. Yeah. The people who have the ability, the capacity, the power, which is what power means, the capacity to act, the people who have the capacity to do something about injustice and don't, or even do the reverse, are the people that God is most upset with. Because there's only so much that people who have had their power taken from them can do to right their situation. Um, people with resources and political influence have more power to right the wrongs of the world, and when they do nothing, God is concerned about that. Um, so kind of to sum all this up this is a quote from uh, Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff who has done a lot of work on the words the word for justice in scripture and kind of explored the concept a lot if one is seeking to do justice and to right injustice which we should all be according to scripture one will not ignore episodic injustice which I mentioned all bad unjust, unjust things happen to everybody including the rich and the powerful. But one will give priority to systemic injustice. And the thing we should be most concerned about is the establishment of a system that makes things unjust from the get-go for people. That has to be eradicated, and then we can start talking about you know, the occasional things that happen to people who have had privileges and advantages and not had to endure injustice from the time that they were born. Questions? <laughs> about, I, I want to read a couple of passages uh, longer than the verses here or there but, um, before we end, but does anybody have? I've got a question. Yes. How in the world do we do this? Because the entire world mm. is built like Yes. Great question. And I'm going to point to something that we are doing right now as the way. Um, so, like I just said, power, which is a word we don't like to talk about that much in, um, and sometimes in, especially in white churches, uh, predominantly white churches, because we have it and we don't want to talk about it. Um, but th all that word really means is the capacity to act. Um, and uh, what we're doing right now, you may have seen some of the announcements on social media if you're on there. But for the past two years, our um, ministers and all of our, and not all, but and a core group of our lay people have been um, working with a bunch of other institutions in Wake County, including synagogues, mosques, a bunch of churches of all different stripes, um, to build uh, an organization that is meant to leverage all of our collective power which means organized people and resources to address 
some of the things that are wrong in our community. And the first three priorities that we're um, focusing on are housing, education, and wages. Um, if you look at uh, other places around the country that have a group like this um, and see the, the wins they've gotten, the gains they've made. Um, for instance, you know, obviously everything isn't peachy in Durham, um, but it would be a lot worse without the organization called Durham Can, um, which is you know, most of the uh, churches that are concerned about things that are wrong in, in Durham County. Um, as well as neighborhood associations and nonprofits and all these people getting together, whenever a candidate runs for office in Durham, they have to come before this group, and this group will ask them, what are you going to do to increase affordable housing, to do this and that and that? And if they say, I'm not going to do that, then this group has the power to say, well, then you're not going to be elected. Because they represent a sizable portion of the constituency. So I know that, you know, I hope that everything I've just said gets us past the, um, the kind of what I think is a, uh, a typical talking point sometimes in church, which is we shouldn't be talking about politics. But all politics is is the way we organize our lives together. Um, it's not a dirty word. All it means is the life of the city, polis, politics. So we, as the people of God, should be very concerned about the life of our city and the way that we organize our lives together. Uh, we have to be engaged in that or else it means we don't care what's happening to people in our community, right? Um, and, not, and not saying anything about politics is political. What you're saying is I'm fine with the way things are. Um, so uh, the community organizing group is what I would say is that that's the first step, right? Um, we may not be able to do anything about the kind of national and global crises that we read about every day. Um, I think we can do some things. Um, but it's much more, um, it's something we have the capacity to do something about much more readily is what happens in our backyard, um, which is what that group is about. And actually, um, we have a name now, officially. It was voted on. And uh, Wes is the one who came up with the name. Um, <laughs> so it's called One Wake, O-N-E, which is an acronym for Organized Neighbors for Empowerment, right? Something like that. Okay. One Wake. So stay tuned for that. Um, there will come a time when we will, you know, uh, say, all right, we need people to show up to this council meeting to be present and say, I'm somebody who's concerned about people being underpaid in Wake County. You know, I'm somebody who's concerned about uh, educational resources for um, these neighborhoods. I'm somebody who's concerned about uh, people having affordable housing in Wake County, which is a growing massive problem. What else? Um, I don't know the answer to that right away. I think um, probably, but they're much more going to be much more concerned with county because there's different organizations. Like Orange County has one, Durham County has one, Wake County has one. That's their that's our primary focus <laughs> is Wake County politics. But. Can someone look up Isaiah 58 for me? We have five minutes. And can someone look up Jeremiah 22, verses 13 to 17? Who hasn't read the one? Okay, anybody else who hasn't read something? Amanda, can, which one you got? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22, 13 to 17. Jeremiah 
space. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, so the we're using um, uh, the expertise of um, Industrial Areas Foundation, which is a community organizing group, and they have several of these type organizations throughout around the country. The closest one is outside of our state is uh, in Virginia, um, kind of in the South DC area. I think I don't remember what their name is, but um, Voice, I think. There's a big one outside of Baltimore, um, places like that. But uh, if you came to Kadisha's ordination, Austin, um, I'm forgetting his last name, but he's the pastor at um, the church that Kadisha um, entered at before she came to our church. He's one of the people involved in that organization in Northern Virginia. Okay, Amanda. Is that not what it means to know me? Um, and you can see there, back to back, you know, he did what is just and right. He defended the cause of the poor. That, that's what it means to do what is just and right. Yes, Jerry. Will you provide us a scripture for each of the topics we've heard about? I have, actually, I left it on the copier up there, but I have a... Um, wrap-up sheet that's got all of the main points and all of the sources for all four sessions. It doesn't have every scripture reference um, because it would be overwhelming, uh, I think. But um, I, can, I can send anybody who's interested in all of the you know, little scripture citations I've cited, I can send you my full notes if you want. Um, but I, I meant to bring those down. I'll leave them in the faith formation boxes for the teachers to um, use or distribute as you, as you like. And if you aren't in one of those classes and you want to be, come talk to me. But if you want one of those sheets and you aren't in a class, uh, I'll get you one as well. Okay. We have two minutes to read Isaiah 58. Does anybody look that up? Chapter 58. Just start in the beginning. I'll, I'll tell you the stuff. <laughs> Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its gods. They ask me for decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? 
Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer, and you will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. That's You'll good, man. And then just uh, to kind of conclude with the words of Jesus, since I know we've read a lot from um, the Hebrew scriptures today, but um, many of you probably have this passage memorized or committed to heart as well, but uh, Jesus' first sermon um, where he states what his mission is in Luke chapter 4. Um, he stood up to read in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, it is our calling, our mission in the world, if we want to be uh, where Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing and what God cares about. Um, okay. Thank you all. Um, remember January 26th, Lydia's teaching series starts. Lauren, those yellow sheets over there is the wrap-up sheet with all of the um, main points of all of those sessions on them. Um, see you in worship. <laughs>